Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. I think that lifting the FDIC insurance cap is a good move. Now, the question is, where's the right number on lifting it? But recognize that we have to do this because these banks are underregulated. And if we lift the cap, we are requiring or relying even more heavily on the regulators to do their job. I try not to listen to Senator Elizabeth Warren, but are we now going to see an increase happening in the FDIC? Why would it even matter if we've already stated that we're going to privatize gains and socialize the losses? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. Let me bring in a Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis, who we've been talking to about these issues. We've been engaged in these conversations. And the last we spoke, you were breaking down, sir, the insanity of what we were seeing from Silicon Valley Bank, uh, from Signature Bank in New York, which is a story that doesn't get enough play at all, sir. Then, of course, the conversation regarding, regarding Silvergate and how they were involved in the crypto world. But let's take the step back. If you were explaining this to somebody from another planet, trying to explain to them what happened here and what took place here, how do you explain what has happened with Silicon Valley Bank and with the banking sector as a whole? You know, Tony, I think that's where we have to start because it's important that people understand the problem before we get into the nuts and bolts of what's happening. The problem started with banks who have too much interest rate risk and too much credit risk. Tony, those are the two kinds of risk that banks have, interest rate risk and credit risks. And they weren't hedging their risk and they were making bad loans, bad investments. That's where it all started. Elizabeth Warren is wrong. They weren't under-regulated, they were misregulated. The current regulators missed the ball, they dropped the ball, they totally didn't understand what was going on. That's where the problem starts and we have to remember interest rate risk and credit risk. But In this case, Tony, we also have to remember that President Biden, who created inflation along with the Fed, lit the fire. They lit the match that started the big fire. And this is what we can't forget about, Tony, is that's where it all began and that the Fed has to raise interest rates to fight inflation. They have no choice at this point, and that is going to harm banks who are taking too much interest rate risk, Tony. Now, that's where I want to push back. I want to push back on this idea that somehow the raising of interest rates is going to harm banks because the raising of interest rates comes as the way to be the hedge against inflation. You described it here. We've discussed it many times. Inflation is too much cash and not enough stuff. And you raise interest rates to therefore reduce the amount of cash supply in the system to bring that down and to bring things into balance. Now, it's kind of hard to do when you don't when you have the supply supply chain issues and you don't have enough stuff uh, coming in, but you're now making an argument or, or maybe you're engaged in the argument they're making. Maybe it's not your specific argument that you can't raise interest rates because the banks are in a too much of a precarious position. Is that the case? The banks are in too precarious of a position and you can't raise rates anymore. So we all deal with inflation because some bank doesn't know how to regulate itself. So Tony, maybe I didn't explain myself well. I think the Fed has to raise interest rates to fight inflation. But what I said is it's going to harm the banks that are mismanaged. It's not going to harm the good banks. It's not going to harm the the banks that have managed their risk properly, that have good credit risk, 
those banks won't be harmed. And that's perfectly fine, Tony. In fact, they'll benefit from higher interest rates because they'll be able to charge a higher rate on the loans they make. What I meant to say, and again, I apologize if I wasn't clear, is it's going to hurt the banks that have been mismanaged. And that's perfectly fine. If you're a mismanaged bank, if you've been rolling the dice and gambling, you should be gone. You shouldn't be around. Someone should gobble you up and we should only have good, solid banks remaining talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Okay, we're talking about well-managed and mismanaged banks here. That's what we're referring to. Talk to me about this mismanagement. As we know the story from Silicon Valley Bank, they were doing what could be seen as the proper thing. They were buying what is the safest buy in America, which is a, a bond, because they wanted to make sure they had the money if their depositors come calling. But there was also a conversation that they were putting out crazy dollars as opposed to what they were taking in. And isn't that something that the regulators at Silicon Valley Bank, the people at Silicon Valley Bank, the CFO at Silicon Valley Bank, the head of risk management at Silicon Valley Bank should have noticed before the state of California and the federal regulators did? And did they notice it too late? Well, well Tony, let me correct one thing that, that you just said. They were making loans and investing depositor dollars and investor dollars in high-risk things, not safe bonds. They had a portion in that. There, It is true. Every bank has a portion of their investments in safe securities. But the problem they were having is they had a significant number of investments, go back to credit risk, in venture capital and crypto companies. That's where they went awry, along with not managing their interest rate risk. Now, Tony, there's a history behind this. So if I could spend a moment and explain to people that what happened at Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate and what's happening at other banks is that they are traditionally investment banks. There's investment banks, Tony, and there's traditional banks. They are different. And President Clinton in 1999 signed a law that repealed Glass-Steagall. This was the act that said we will not combine the two. Traditional safe banks can't be doing investment banking because investment banking is risky. He signed a law that prevented that. And, and Tony, that's where all this problem started. It started then, and then the, this gray area started mingling. And so what you have with Silicon Valley Bank is an tr investment bank mentality. In fact, Tony, one of their top executives was a former CFO at Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers, the biggest bank yeah. failure that we had at that time in history, went out of business because they were gambling on the kind of loans and investments they made. And he was the guy in charge at Silicon Valley Bank. It's go back, go back, if you would, to this Glass-Steagall conversation, talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, D-R-M-A-T-T-W-I-L-L, -L, Dr. Matt Will, on, on, on Twitter, because we hear about Glass-Steagall and then we hear about Dodd-Frank. And these are the things that led us down this road. Break down Glass-Steagall for us and exactly the issue that that created in the Silicon Valley Bank story. Tony, there, there used to be a law in this country that said, if you're an investment bank, you're higher risk, you don't get FDI insurance, but you can do things that are riskier. If you're a traditional bank, you can get FDIC insurance. You can't do certain things that are investment-oriented derivatives, venture capital lending, leveraged buyouts. You have to be a very safe because you're holding the people's money. The people on Main Street are trusting you. In 1999, President Clinton signed a law to repeal Glass-Steagall that allowed these two banks to come together. So now traditional banks 
could start being risky and risky banks could start being more traditional and they got insurance. And that's what we're seeing here. The traditional bank model has been corrupted by this investment bank mentality. And if we, I'm assuming we're going to talk about what's happened in Switzerland and we see it happening there exactly the same way that it happened here. Now, when we talk about what happened in Switzerland, I think I've got this right. This is nuts. Credit Suisse, which is more on the institutional side of, of lending, started to have the same problems, the same capital problems that you saw from Silicon Valley Bank. The, the Saudi Arabian Bank, the National Bank of Saudi Arabia, which is the Saudi royal family, they have 9.9% of the bank. And they said, sorry, we can't help you. We can't have more than 10% as per the regulators. So we, you're, you're, you know what, out of luck with us. We can't give you any cash. Enter the Swiss National Bank, which pours, I believe it was 54 billion US dollars into the bank. And then a week later, UBS, a competitor to Credit Suisse, is allowed to buy the entire company. UBS is allowed to buy Credit Suisse for $3.4 billion. If I thought Credit Suisse was available for $3.4 billion, Dr. Will, you and I could have put together a team and, and, and bought this thing. That is That seems to be like no money at all. So people are very upset about this, saying, wait a second, what kind of boondoggle is going on here? What kind of boondoggle is going on here and how does it relate to the other things? Well, it's, it's, it's almost exactly like the Silicon Valley bank situation because UBS, let's go back to the analogy I just gave you. UBS is a traditional bank. They are very solid. They have no interest rate risk. They have almost no credit risk. They're a very boring bank, Tony. And if you put your money in UBS, it's safe. Credit Suisse, on the other hand, was more of an investment bank. They were rolling the dice. They were competing directly with Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, and Chase for investment banking deals. These are high-risk deals, Tony, venture capital type stuff, just like SVB was doing. They were competing with those companies, and they were losing. Credit Suisse didn't have a natural depositor base like you and I. They didn't have the average person putting money in their bank. Their depositors were the Saudi Arabian government, the Kuwaiti government these sovereign wealth funds that had billions of dollars in there. And Tony, when they pulled their money out, there was no money left to replace what they had removed. And that's where the problem was. Now, Tony, I don't know that you and I could have bought the bank because the Swiss government broke every Swiss law when they handed it over to UBS. And we can get into this uh, addition, what's called AT1 tier capital and subordinate loans, but they totally violated the rules. And all the other people in Europe are very upset about it. And they've been saying, we will not let that happen in our countries. We will have to get to that uh, another day, talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Let's bring it back here and let's go back to that commentary from Senator Elizabeth Warren and the idea of increasing the caps on FDIC. Um, it seems that if Joe Biden, the president, already says that we'll do more uh, to ensure that depositors have their money safe, if Janet Yellen, the uh, Treasury Secretary, is saying we will do more to ensure the banking system is safe, what does it matter what FDIC does, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation? It seems to me that our leadership has stated we're going to privatize gains and we are going to socialize losses. Is that or is that not what they have said with this Silicon Valley Bank, what I'll refer to as bailout? Tony, it is factually correct what you just said, but it's even worse. 
Because think of the student loan situation. Let me use that as an analogy. In that situation, it's the, the person who didn't go to college, who's working a nine to five job, a, a, you know, electrician who's bailing out, you know, the, the doctor who has all these loans piled up from medical school. That's what's going to happen here. The person has under $250,000 is going to pay increased insurance penalties. Tony, that's a tax. I don't care what the president says. It's a tax. So you and I, those people that have under $250,000 in the bank, they're going to pay an extra fee to bail out the Mark Cubans of the world, the high rolling tech investors in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco, in Boston. These people that are, the Bill Ackman, one of the biggest hedge fund, richest guys in the country says, hey, increase the limit. Why, Tony? Because he's got money in these banks. Mark Cuban has money in these banks. These very rich people want to get bailed out. And that's what she's talking about. You and I, the average person will be paying to bail out the billionaires, Tony. That is wrong. And I can't believe she's saying it. And they're trying to hide it under the guise of populism. This conversation continues because... There's more and more about how these banks are acting, how the federal government is acting, and, and how dangerous it is, for is, it is for us. And one of the things Dr. Matt Will gets into is that what you're hearing from uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, what you're hearing from Secretary Janet Yellen, this is bad news for us. Because it really is dividing America into the haves and have-nots. It's saying that some people deserve a bailout and some people deserve to pay for the bailout. Part two of my conversation with Dr. Matt Will. Coming up, keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. So no indictment yet for President Trump. And you shouldn't be surprised that the whole conversation was wrong. In that, we were told there was going to be an indictment today, and there's not an indictment today. And we knew that yesterday, and we got more confirmation of that uh, today. It's I don't want to confuse the issues, because I, I, I feel that I am in two very unique places on this subject. And, and the first is, is that there is no doubt in my mind that this is political, and you don't doubt that either. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com, TonyKatz.Locals.com. The phone number, 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. That's the number. That's how you get to be a part of the show. Of course, the whole purpose. They don't care about the rule of law. They don't care how they manipulate the law. As long as they can get their guy, these people are completely and totally obsessed. They are four seconds away from boiling the bunny. That's who they are. Completely and totally obsessed. This is all they think about. I can do this all day. All day, son. This is it. We get this. We are indeed still at this level. I mean, some people want to claim they're a nerd by it. All right. It's still uh, shocking in a way that we can see the political left act this cravenly and act with this much disregard for the rule of law. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. But we're getting there. We're getting closer every day to expecting it. We're getting closer every day to realizing that this is how these people are. This is how these people act. They don't care about the rule of law at all. All they want to do, 
every last bit of it is burn it down. It is sabotage. It, it, the Constitution is inconsequential. The, the, the spirit of the law is inconsequential. Rational thought is inconsequential. Just burn it down. It's crazy to witness. It's crazy to watch, but it's totally fact. We see it with our own eyes. We see it. We're not crazy. We're not making it up. We're not overreacting. Oh, oh, sure, they chanted lock her up, and now all of a sudden uh, the political right's angry. There's a difference between a ridiculous chant at a political rally and the district attorney of Manhattan engaged in a wholesale effort to fully throw away common decency and say, oh, what Trump did was a felony, when no rational person thinks it was a felony. Democrats know this is wrong, but they refuse to say anything because not a one of them has a core enough to say this is wrong. Name me one. Not a one. Because this is not, to them, the political capital is not worth it. It's not worth going against the party. It's not worth going against the machine. It's just not worth it. They'll get destroyed. They'll lose their donor base and everything else. They'll lose it. Gone. So what do they give up in the process? Give up their soul? Give up the country? Give up rational thought? Give up decency? Give up the idea that we are not a nation of men. We are indeed a nation of laws. And that's what we follow, the law. And we don't decide to apply the law willy-nilly as we see fit. Now you say to me, well, Tony, isn't that what you're discussing? Willy-nilly as we see fit? The law would state that if the Trump team, through Michael Cohen, the then lawyer, gave money to Stormy Daniels, the porn star, that that would be a misdemeanor based on its categorization. Now they want to take that misdemeanor and say, well, really, this was about influencing an election, a violation of New York election laws, and therefore it's a felony. That's the manipulation. That's the nutty part. There's a real question as to whether a judge would look at that and go, are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? But if the judge is a fellow traveler, I'm not sure which judge would have uh, this case, depending on what else they add to some level of indictment. Remember, they could have this, and then they could decide to throw in seven other things and see what sticks. That's the problem. We are now to the stage that the left is trying to say, here's what sticks, or what can we get to stick? That's it. No, don't. I'm not in favor of any of this. This is sick and twisted. And that the political left is silent, I think, is gross. But if Trump's going to respond by calling Stormy Daniels horse face, it's just so dumb. Your argument is they've come after me with everything. They've never gotten anything. They totally lie. I'm innocent. That's your argument. Go with that argument. It's a winner. It will actually get people to your side. You look sympathetic. When you call Stormy Daniels horse face, you sound and look like a schmuck. And man, do I hate an unforced error. I despise it with everything in me. And that's where I, 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 I can cover both sides of this. I, Trump's getting abused. I agree. Why doesn't Trump just handle the subject as is and stop making it worse? Don't be a dope. Please.
Meanwhile, we get into part two of my conversation with Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. This entire Silicon Valley Bank Credit Suisse situation, is this going to start affecting us in the U.S.? Should, should we be worried about our banks and our money? Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. We should be clear that this monster of a banking issue is indeed a monster. And what we're starting to see more and more of is that whether it's Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, or it's it's anti-capitalists like Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts. I said anti-capitalist. I meant it. What? Is someone going to argue this with me? I'm, feel free. Go right ahead. She is what she is. She hates business. She hates profit. She hates the idea that you're able to control what it is that is yours. She hates the idea that you're able to get a return on your investment. Everything you do is evil, and somehow she thinks she's good and decent. Despicable. I don't think there's anybody out there who best personifies uh, the opposite of what it is to be able to go out and thrive and build than Elizabeth Warren in her policies and in what it is that she pushes and promotes. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything, tonycats.locals.com, tonycats.locals.com. I spoke with Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, about this, this monster because the, the Silicon Valley Bank failure is only now part of the story. It's what's happened afterward. It's the failure of Silvergate, which was investing, or I should say, loaning and taking in things regarding crypto. Uh, Signature Bank, again, the same deal, and that's not being anti-crypto. It's about whether or not you've got smart policies for your bank. And it's the bailouts of these banks, and yes, I'm using the terminology bailout. I don't feel bad about it at all. And why it's happening, and why is it that people like Elizabeth Warren are promoting the idea of increasing the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Company, threshold. And most importantly, if we're now going to, as I've been discussing, as has been said, privatize the gains but socialize the losses, where this can can really spread out and do a lot of damage, should we feel safe regarding banking in America? Are our banks safe? So I had this conversation with Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis, and brought it back in this way. I want to continue the conversation, though, and I want to start digging into a part two, which is about how Americans are affected by this. When I get asked, Dr. Will, on the radio shows uh, about what do I think uh, about the banking sector, first, I I don't claim an expertise. Uh, I'm a radio host. My job is to know things about things that you're not going to have an expertise in all things, and the people screaming they have an expertise I think are kind of laughable. But there's nothing that I've read and nothing I've had in my conversations with you or anybody else that says to me, hey, everything's about to go belly up and sideways. Now, that was true last week. Then I watched this UBS Credit Swiss deal. And when you talk about uh, the Swiss government breaking all the rules, well, it doesn't seem like the U.S. government is far behind. We have to do something. We have to be a backstop. We have to put an end to this. We have to be keep the people safe by any means necessary is what it seems uh, to look like there. So the question before us is the safety and the security of the U.S. banking sector. $30 billion went into a bank called First Republic from 11 different banks. When I see 
other banks putting into banks and investing into them, as opposed to the federal government, let's start here. Shouldn't I look at that as a good sign, as a sign of these people trying to take care of their own world, as opposed to relying on the government, or is this all subterfuge? You know, Tony, you asked two questions. One is, is this going to get big and out of hand? And the second is, what's happening with First Republic? Um, let, let me answer the First Republic issue first. And that is, it is pure window dressing and PR. The $30 billion, first of all, it's not going to be enough to bail out First really? Republic. Really? No, not even close. First Republic is the uh, Silicon Valley of uh, New York. It's this. It's the same situation. Um, they're in the same boat, and we're going to have the same problem, and that's not going to do it. But the reason Jamie Dimon is doing this, because Jamie Dimon wants to buy First Republic Bank. And it's no risk to him because, Tony, the money moved out of First Republic and into J.P. Morgan. So they've got this cash sitting there and they say, well, what do we do with it? The economy's slowing down. They can't make loans. So they got this cash sitting there. So what's Jamie Dimon going to do with it? He's going to deposit it right back into First Republic Bank. That's what he's going to do with it, Tony. That's exactly what he's doing. So, you know, this, this, think of it as the New York, San Francisco cabal here. He's simply trying to put the money into a bank so that he has leverage to buy it later. And he will buy it, Tony. And I, I bet money on it that he's going to end up getting First Republic. And why does he want it? Because their San Francisco operations have a tremendous number of wealthy, high-tech money depositors. He wants access to those people, Tony. He's just buying a customer base with billions of dollars in their pockets. That's what he's doing here, Tony. That's exactly what's happening here. There's no benevolence about it. It's pure, unadulterated greed on the part of uh, J.P. Morgan to get money out of the uh, debacle with First Republic. So I bring that up as a way of getting to that first part of the question. You're right. I did indeed ask two questions. Is the U.S. banking sector in trouble is, well, for many people, the only question. And my answer was... No, it's not based on everything that I'm seeing, based on every level uh, of reporting that's out there. Well, I don't know if I feel the same way now as I did a week ago. I haven't gone to my bank. I have not run to the bank and said, make it rain on me, right? I haven't done any of that. But it is very obvious that what we're seeing from the federal government, from the U.S. government, seems to be played in a bit of panic. What I cannot answer, and I'm hoping you can, is that panic also window dressing, also a play that's being put on to be able to pass these new regulations to protect friends and others and donors, etc.? Or is there a real fear that the interest rates from Jerome Powell because of the inflation caused by Biden spending was too much, too quick, And there's a series of banks, possibly up to 200 of them, as reported by the Wall Street Journal, I believe it was, or or The Economist, that cannot keep up. And they really are fearful of having a serious banking issue. Okay, Tony, you asked one question with multiple parts in there. I Um, tried. But I'll start by saying that your initial gut reaction is correct. When you thought that things were okay and now you don't feel they're okay, that is exactly correct. And let me go back to the 2008 analogy again. In 2008, the Secretary of Treasury, Hank Paulson, he said everything was fine. And everything was fine, Tony. And we're going to have Bear Stearns and Washington Mutual and a few other banks go out of business. Until the government passed the Hope for Homeowners Act. When Chris Dodd passed that act and John McCain and Barack Obama voted for it, 
they then started bailing out their rich friends on Wall Street. And then the contagion started. It went from a few bad actors who were going to be cleaned up and sent away until then the government passed a law that spread the pain to everyone. Tony, they're making the same mistake. Let the companies who have credit risk and interest rate risk go out of business. Let the people who have under 250000 in those banks be survived. Let the Mark Cubans who have deposits in those banks suffer. But don't spread it around. And what Elizabeth Warren is saying, Tony, and what Janet Yellen is saying is they want to spread the pain to everybody. I saw a report this morning from Argus Research that looked at Indiana banks. And Indiana banks, we're talking the local banks, you know, the old national banks, the Huntingtons, they don't have a problem. They have no interest rate risk. They have no credit risk. They've managed themselves well. If Janet Yellen and Elizabeth Warren get their way, they will spread this pain to the solid banks of the country. How? How does, if, if the idea, as you heard Senator Warren describe it earlier, if the idea is to increase the threshold of deposits that will be secured, is it that you're going to have to spend too much money to protect these people, or is there something else? How does the contagion, as you describe it, spread? It's more than that, Tony. Well, first of all, when you increase the amount from 250000 the cost will be shared by everybody, especially the people with under two hundred fifty dollars in the bank. So every single person in an Indiana bank will have to pay more insurance fees, more premiums through their bank to cover the losses for the billionaires of the country, because that's what Yellen and, and Elizabeth Warren want to do. So first of all, it's going to hit these banks. These banks are not super profitable, Tony. They're consistently profitable. They have no downside risk. They have not a bunch of upside. They're very solid and stable and boring banks, which is what you want in a bank. They're going to force more costs on these people. Second, they're going to regulate them with different capital requirements. They're going to say, well, you have to have more of this kind of risk-based capital, more of that kind of investment. And they're going to totally ruin these banks and force them, force them to merge into larger banks. And by the way, Jamie Dimon and his colleagues are very happy with that. They would just assume get rid of all the regional banks. 90% of the loans come in this country, Tony, come from regional banks. You go to your local school, your local um, you know, city jurisdiction, right. small company in Marion County. They get their loans from the regional banks and they get good customer service. Can you imagine picking up the phone and calling someone in New York and saying, I got a problem with my loan. How's that going to work for the, the business running in Greenwood? Right, talking about a suburb of Indianapolis where we're both located. Uh, You sound like a guy sounding the alarm. Who else is sounding the alarm? And is anybody listening to the bells? Well, Tony, you know, the alarm I'm sounding is different than the one that Yellen and Elizabeth Warren are sounding. the, The alarm bell I'm sounding is don't let them scare you. Don't let them get their way. Don't let them let big government take over this entire process. Let the market clean itself up, get the better, more competent regulators in the in the door to clean up some of these banks, but don't let it spread. Don't let them spread it. Tony, they're going to spread it because they want to protect their donors. There's a lot of donors in Silicon Valley to the Democratic Party, a whole bunch of them, and they're going to be bailed out by you and I because Yellen and Elizabeth Warren want to do that. We brought this up uh, the, the the day after it happened. If Silicon Valley Bank, sir, was named East Palestine Valley Bank, would we be seeing this? No. You believe you believe that 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 there wouldn't be any move to try and and help this bank if it was based in East Palestine, Ohio. 
and I can tell you for a fact that it's not gonna wouldn't happen because I know because regional banks have been gobbling up other regional banks. I could give you a list of those acquisitions. Whenever they run into a little bit of problem, someone else comes in and buys them. That's what happens in the market. It's called the free market. But when it's a bank that's supported by a particular political philosophy, Tony, then the government has to step in and then spread the pain to all of us because that's what socialists do. All right, I'm going to spread the pain to everybody. So I'm going to ask you because this did come up where you have President Biden vetoing the legislation that would put really put an end to ESG, uh, environmental social governance, as, as a way of utilizing or, or as, a, as a guide to investing. And of course, Joe Biden says uh, we're not going to have that because it's too much of a MAGA idea not to allow this. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, the, the representative from Georgia, shouldn't be in charge uh, of your investing uh, strategy. Um, you, you, you brought this up. You're the one who, who opened up the door on, on, on the political. Did Silicon Valley Bank go under because of ESG or ESG-type philosophies? Tony, it was a contributing factor. They did not have a risk control officer for nine months, Tony. This is an office that's required to submit daily risk reports to the federal government, and they didn't have someone in place for nine months. Tony, and, and there's, you know, I don't want to get into the details of where she was, but she was off doing ESG type stuff and not doing stuff related to risk management of the bank. And I think it was a factor. It, it didn't cause it, Tony. It didn't cause it, but it was a factor in the in the fall of the bank. Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis, D-R-M-A-T-T-W-I-L-L on the Twitter box. Dr. Matt Will, I appreciate you taking uh, the, the time. I, I sometimes get accused of bringing too much wonk to radio. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there's any such thing. If if we don't have uh, the underpinnings, the understanding of what's happening, how in the world are we supposed to understand what's happening to us? It's not for people to dumb things down. It is for us to up our game. Anybody who dumbs it down to you, that's hate. That is hate. That is bigotry. That is them saying you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, I have to spoon feed it to you, and then they decide what to spoon feed. Not here, man. No, 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 no. I'm learning like you are. And what we're learning is that once again, government interference is what's going to lead us down a dark, dark path. He's right. That's the thing that we have to fight. Let the market clean itself up. We'll talk more about it for sure. Find everything. TonyCats.locals.com. This is Tony Katz Today. Gwyneth Paltrow's on trial? It, 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 it's for goop, isn't it? Or whatever her website is. And all the stuff that she has out there, all the candles that smell like her, if you know what I if you know what I mean. I don't think I could say it on air. I really don't. And if I could, I'd still be totally uncomfortable because I've got an ego, but my ego has never said to me, I need to make a you know what scented candle. Never, never dawned on me. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Uh, she's being sued by a retired optometrist who claims that the actress, Gwyneth Paltrow, crashed into him in 2016 while skiing in Utah. His name is Terry Sanderson. Says Paltrow was cruising down the slopes recklessly. They collided, leaving him on the ground as she and her entourage continued their descent. 
Gwyneth Paltrow skied out of control, according to the lawsuit, knocking him down hard, knocking him out, causing a brain injury, four broken ribs and other serious injuries. Paltrow got up, turned and skied away, leaving Sanderson stunned, lying in the snow, seriously injured. He's suing for $300,000, saying that it was negligence uh, and it was left with physical injuries and emotional distress. If you're suing Gwyneth Paltrow, why isn't it for $300 million or $30 million, $3 million. Come on, something. But answer me this. Gwyneth Paltrow is what? 82 pounds? I mean, she's taller, it seems. I only know her from TV or, or movies, but it, she seems rather, rather thin. She's skiing, you're skiing, she knocked you down? Now, if she's moving at a, at a rate, she's got velocity, and you're standing there, that's very, very possible. But she walked away without a scratch? Anybody else find that weird? By the way, I was right. The initial lawsuit um, uh, it was $3.1 million. This guy amended the complaint and is now seeking 300000 Paltrow filed a counterclaim seeking attorney fees and $1 in damages. She's like, he did it, he's overstating his injuries, and he's only after me because I'm a celebrity and I've got money. Now, that's possible. It's possible it's just because you got the loot there, Gwyneth. But, uh, but did, you, did, you, did you run into him uh, while you were skiing? Let's find out uh, what happens. They think this trial is going to last longer than a week. He shouldn't have gone for the money. He should have gone for the candles. He would have already been settled. He could have then sold them on eBay because, oddly enough, people buy those things. It's creepy, but totally true. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. TonyCats.locals.com. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.